and boy, everybody's been like young Jimmy. Grandfather, one in a million ancestors. I need the bar on my face, the bar on my face in this ancestral embrace that is skin tight, but my skin fits me just They're all there, my ancestral throne, for I am, we are, lifetimes infinite, billion strong. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mind Your Margins, a podcast that seeks to foster a space where it's humanly possible to make humanity possible. My name is Michelle Myers, and I'm going to try my best to help us navigate through topics about marginalized identities and prioritizing the perspectives of people who may feel invisible or silenced or ignored or erased. I also want to acknowledge that these discussions are sometimes difficult, but I'm hoping that through these conversations, we can claim space for understanding and compassion. I know it's been a while since I've posted an episode, so for those of you who are listening, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for your patience, for listening, and being present. But before I get into discussing my topic, which is going to be about the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once and mental health issues in Asian American Pacific Islander communities, as I do at the beginning of every episode, I'm going to share a land acknowledgement statement. I call out to the ancestors of the native peoples of this land in the hopes that by honoring them, I also honor my mother and father, who are now both ancestors, and through them connect to my Korean ancestors and the land of my birth. So I hope you'll reflect on the words as I speak them. I acknowledge that the land on which I live and work are the ancestral lands of the Lenny Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware continue to this day. I recognize that the place where I recorded this podcast also sits on the unceded homeland of the Lenny Lenape people, I and my listeners take this opportunity to honor the original caretakers of this land and recognize the histories of land theft, violence, erasure, and oppression that has brought ourselves here. We are grateful to be guests in these lands and commit to solidarity and the struggle for indigenous sovereignty. This land acknowledgement reminds us of our connections and indebtedness to the indigenous people of New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware, saying their names and learning their histories, call their spirits to life. Thank you so much for listening to that land acknowledgement statement. Before I move on, I want to say to anyone listening who identifies as non-Native, I really hope you seek out information about issues that are impacting Native peoples. For example, mindful of the topic I'm going to talk about today as it relates to the Asian American community, if you're not aware of the mental health crisis in Native communities, I urge you to please make yourself aware of it. A September 2022 report on the Centers for Disease Control website indicated that the suicide rate among Native American peoples and Native Alaskans has increased 20% from 2015 to 2020. If you can discover active ways to be in respectful allyship with Native communities on this crisis as well as on other issues, I really hope that you will do so. So as I was saying earlier, I know that it's been many months since I posted an episode. And honestly, one of the reasons why it was taking so long is because my dad passed away. And 
after he passed away, I went back into my bubble, the same bubble that I was in when my mom passed away. And when Myung started asking me if I planned on recording new podcast episodes, I was thinking that maybe I should focus on lighter topics to talk about because I felt as though in all of the episodes so far, I've talked about something really heavy where I got emotional and started crying at some point in the episode. And I didn't want to keep doing that for my sake as well as for yours. But every time I started to plan to do something lighthearted or celebratory, there would be some new incident of a school shooting or mass shooting or police brutality or hate crime. Each day, my heart braces for the pain of the next horrible thing. And I get exhausted because I feel each one of these tragedies. Sometimes I cry. Most times I get angry. And my anger and my grief paralyze me. And then I don't want to project my emotions onto this podcast or onto anyone who's listening. So I just decide to stay quiet. I stay in my bubble. But I finally watched everything everywhere all at once. And I feel like this movie gave me permission to talk about mental health challenges generally. And maybe even the mental health challenges that I personally grapple with every single day. I've been pretty upfront about my grief over losing my mom and dad and how talking about some of the topics in the podcast episodes deeply affect me. So let's just finally talk about mental health. Let's make space for it. And I want to talk about this in a way that creates a safe space for other people too. Just please be aware that I'm going to be talking about mental health issues as they specifically impact Asian American Pacific Islander communities. But I understand and believe that even through specificity, we can find pathways to universal and common experiences. I also felt like this was an ideal time to record this episode and talk more openly about mental health and how everything, everywhere, all at once considers mental health challenges within the AAPI community because by the time this episode comes out, it'll be May. And since May is... Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and Mental Health Awareness Month, and also Mother's Day is in May. I don't know, it just seemed like all of this was aligning in such a meaningful way so that I felt pulled to talk about these topics at this particular time. I also want to put out a trigger warning because I plan to discuss very difficult and serious topics such as depression and suicide. And finally, while I'm issuing warnings, I want to issue a spoiler alert for any of you who haven't seen Everything Everywhere All at Once because I will be talking about the movie. So as I record this episode, it's the end of March 2023 and I just watched the movie yesterday. Before watching it, I hadn't read about it or even really knew what it was about except that Michelle Yeoh stars in it and that she's jumping through various multiverses. And even though I'm a huge fan of Michelle Yeoh, she's a big reason why I started practicing martial arts over a decade ago. Honestly, after all the Marvel stuff, I have multiverse fatigue, and I didn't know if I wanted to watch this movie. But my brother watched it sometime last summer, and he told me it was really good, but he also said it was going to make me cry because the mother and daughter in the movie had a challenging relationship. 
And of course, my brother knows what kind of relationship I had with our mom. So I said, well, then I can't watch that right now. Our dad had just passed away and we had interred his ashes next to my mom's at the cemetery. And I was dealing with settling my dad's estate and I have all my mom and dad's stuff in my house. And it was really difficult going through all of it and learning things about both of them that I never knew before. And I knew that in that moment, I couldn't deal with a movie about Asian moms and daughters. Then the holidays rolled around and my brother asked me if I had watched it yet. And I was like, no. And he was like, why not? And he said I should watch it. But he also said that he wasn't going to watch it with me because he knew I was going to cry and he didn't want to be around me when I cried. So now I was afraid of watching this movie because my brother had told me twice that it was going to make me cry. And on top of that, I was probably going to have to watch it alone. And I didn't feel like watching this movie by myself and seeing something in it that was going to trigger memories of my own relationship with my mother and potentially cause me to have an emotional breakdown. So I just kept avoiding it. Then it was nominated for all these Oscar awards and it won big at the Oscars, but I still didn't feel like watching it. And even Myung was asking me when I was going to watch it. But she told me she had cried when she saw it too. And so once again, I told myself, I'm not watching this movie. But for some reason, the other day, I just felt this strong urge to watch it. And yesterday morning, it was the first thing I did after I woke up. I put it on and finally I watched it. And I did cry. I was crying within the first five minutes, I think. But I also laughed. I'm still processing it. Honestly, I have a lot of complicated thoughts and feelings about this movie. But what made me want to immediately devote a podcast episode to this movie after months of avoiding it and generally feeling too paralyzed to talk about anything were The Rocks and The Everything Bagel. The scenes that made me cry the hardest were the scenes with The Rocks and then the scene at the end of the movie with The Everything Bagel. I'm not sure if people who aren't Asian American or who don't have immigrant parents really understand how this movie deeply affected some of us who have these very difficult relationships with our immigrant parents. And as an Asian American woman, I'm talking specifically about the relationship between one and a half or second generation Asian American daughters and their first generation immigrant mothers. So if you don't know the difference between one and a half generation and second generation, one and a half generation or 1.5 generation are children who are born in their family's country of origin, but who grew up in the U.S. That's what I am. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, but my parents brought me here as a baby, and I grew up here. The second generation are children who have immigrant parents, but they are the first generation born and raised in the United States. That's my brother. I've been looking at some articles written about everything everywhere all at once, and I didn't want to read too much, though, because I didn't want to be too influenced by what people have been already saying about it. But for sure, this movie is about intergenerational trauma. For sure, it's about generational conflict, linguistic barriers within our own families, and the pernicious effect of the model minority myth. You know, as I was watching everything, everywhere, all at once, I kept thinking about Hasan Minhaj's comedy special Homecoming King on Netflix. 
my students from last semester had encouraged me to watch it. And now I plan to show it to my students in all of my Asian American studies and immigrant American courses when I teach them. And I quote from his show a lot. And many of the themes in Homecoming King overlap with what's unfolding in everything, everywhere, all at once. In his routine, though, Hassan is talking about his relationship with his immigrant Indian Muslim father, while he himself is a second-generation Indian Muslim American man. Like the moment that I saw Evelyn surrounded by receipts as she was dealing with and feeling overwhelmed by being audited by the IRS, I immediately thought about Hassan Minhaj talking about the American Dream Tax. And then later, when it became clear that Jobu Tupaki was the Alphaverse version of her daughter Joy, all I kept thinking about was the quote-unquote audacity of equality. If you've ever seen Homecoming King, that's the scene where he's describing the hate crime that was perpetrated against his family after 9-11 because they're Muslim, and their car was vandalized, they got this phone call where they were called racist names and threatened, and Hassan went outside with his father and he wanted his father to be angry at the injustice of being treated like this. He wanted his father to be ready to fight for his family. But all his father did was start sweeping up the glass and all he kept saying was, oh, what will people think? What will people think? This is the concept within many Asian cultures which is known as quote-unquote saving face or of not wanting to quote-unquote lose face, of not wanting to be judged and shamed by other people. And Hassan was like, this is how you react? This is how you're going to react? That's what he was thinking in that moment. And Hassan was like, no, no, this is not right. This is an injustice. I was born here. I grew up here. I learned American history. I have the audacity of equality. It says it right here, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And I kept thinking about that, about having the audacity of equality. As I saw Evelyn in this movie, everything, everywhere, all at once realized that she was complicit and not only perpetuating the trauma she felt and how her father treated her when she was growing up, but also in having all these expectations of joy that somehow Evelyn believed never got fulfilled and which she communicated as disappointment and joy, as this crushing and suffocating disappointment, and that joy heard as her mother saying she was not enough, that she couldn't be accepted for who she was, that she wasn't loved for who she was. She heard conditional love, not unconditional love. That also goes for Alphaverse Joy as Jobu Tupaki, who was pushed so hard by Alphaverse Evelyn to verse jump that her mind splinters. And I know that even the Daniels duo have talked about how the splintering of Alpha Joy's mind is representative of ADHD, but I would argue that it could also be seen as representing a psychotic break. But I want to be careful here because I don't want to make Evelyn a villain. I'm not comfortable with the terms hero and villain as they've been used to discuss this movie. Evelyn and Joy are, are neither of these. They are just two people trying to find meaning and truth in their lives, which makes sense and give them purpose. Evelyn is not telling Joy that she's fat and criticizing her for not calling and not being fully accepting of her girlfriend because she doesn't love her in some twisted way, she's telling her those things precisely because she loves her. She thinks that she has to tell her the quote-unquote truth, but it's way more complicated than that because it's also connected to her own trauma and her projecting her own pain from how she was treated by her father 
and this spanned across the multiverses. In the multiverses where Evelyn didn't become a mother, she's the one who's in the quote-unquote joy position as she receives harsh criticism from her own father, and she finally has that trauma mirrored to her in such a way that she realizes that she's been projecting her trauma onto joy. And in the multiverse where she doesn't become a mother, Evelyn also has an epiphany of how her life would be different in the absence of joy. And I think that pun on joy's name is deliberate. The idea of choosing joy or denying joy. The absence of joy and the presence of joy. And how Evelyn has taken joy for granted in her own life. All of those meanings are there. So richly multi-layered and symbolic of generational trauma and perhaps even karmic pain that in each of our lifetimes we are presented with challenges and circumstances and relationships that we have been tasked to work on so that our spirits can grow and so that we can initiate karmic healing through our spiritual growth and manifest that healing and growth in our lifetimes to come. But if that sounds too new agey for some of you, I can absolutely bring a conversation back to the quote-unquote real world. And I'd like to come back to the profoundly real mental health aspect of intergenerational trauma, which sometimes get projected through a highly critical approach to parenting. I do believe that our immigrant parents are proud of us and do love us. But many times, as I said, they don't communicate it that way. Because they have a certain vision of how and why they sacrifice everything to come to the United States. They have a certain vision of the American dream. And in that vision of the American dream, we as their children play a very specific part. We have a very specific role in their minds. Our accomplishments become proof and extensions of their own successes. Get straight A's, play an instrument, become doctor or a lawyer. We become living testimony and proof that their sacrifices were worth it and that through it all, they were great parents to have such dutiful and successful children. That's part of the model minority myth. And when we express a different desire or when we aren't the person they want us to be, they're profoundly disappointed in us because they think we don't know what's at stake their reputation in the eyes of others as a quote unquote great parent. And then it becomes a matter of saving face. I mean, as an Asian person, if you want to insult another Asian person to their core, then you tell them that their parents must be ashamed of them. Do you know how many times me and Cassie have heard that? Because an Asian person thought it was shameful that we use profanity in some of our poetry? Oh, your parents must be so ashamed. And honestly, my mom was. She was ashamed at first. My mom never once came to see me perform live, and the only time she ever watched a performance of mine was when Cassie and I were on Deaf Poetry. My mom and dad had HBO, and she stayed up to watch Deaf Poetry Jam. And you know what she said to me? She said, oh, why did you have to curse so much? Now I can't even tell our family in Korea that you were on TV. See, she didn't want to lose face. And so our immigrant parents think it's their duty as our parents to tell us that this behavior is disappointing to them because, after all, what will people think? The fear of losing face. The fear of being seen as a failure as a parent because they've been told the same thing by their own parents in some way. You know, don't bring shame on this family. And then, how will they be judged? Evelyn was worried about what her father would think about the laundromat, right? About Joy being queer and having a girlfriend. 
And it wasn't necessarily that she didn't want Joy to be happy. It was about what would her father think. It would be just another thing that she had failed at too. So that's the intergenerational trauma part. And I think it's important to recognize that this idea of saving face, of being worried about what other people think, that this contributes to the cultural stigma within AAPI communities about seeking mental health support. It's one of the reasons why AAPIs, especially elders, won't seek therapy. It's a sign of weakness, a sign that there's something quote-unquote wrong with you. If people know you're seeing a therapist, they will think you must be quote-unquote crazy. And then how will you save face? But then, in the movie, Evelyn realizes her complicity in making Joy profoundly sad. She realizes that she caused so much pain in her daughter, who's growing up in the United States where we're told that we can be anything we want to be. But then we realize, no, we can't. And the people who should love us the most, they don't even believe it. So when we're experiencing microaggressions or anti-Asian violence because we're Asian American, and people say, oh no, you don't know what racism is. You've never experienced racism. Asians have it good. So that whole model minority myth rears its ugly head. Or when we're dealing with sexism as Asian American women and we're being fetishized and sexually objectified and people are like, oh, you should take it as a compliment. When we're being told that we're overreacting or that we're misinterpreting or that our feelings aren't valid. And at the same time, our mothers are telling us that we're getting fat. I felt Joy's pain so much when Evelyn told her that. My mom told me that throughout my life. When I look back at photos of myself as a teenager, when my mom was telling me I was fat, I think to myself now, I wasn't fat at all. But I believed it because this was my mom telling me this. And also telling me my freckles are ugly. My mom even told me my freckles were ugly even as... I sat next to her when she was getting chemo. When I was by her side, trying to give her comfort and support through her chemo treatments, she was looking disapprovingly at my face and telling me my freckles are ugly. And again, I don't want to villainize my mom by sharing this. I love my mom deeply. I know that my mom had unresolved trauma from growing up after the Korean War without a father because my grandfather was killed during the Korean War, and how my mom felt abandoned by her own mother. I know the neglect and abuse that my mom experienced growing up. So I understand all that. I recognize my mom's own emotional struggles throughout her lifetime with that. But for the next generation of daughters within this cycle of trauma, when our own mothers are saying these hurtful things to us, we feel like we don't have a safe space anywhere where we can talk about how we're feeling, where we can be understood, where we don't even have that in our own homes. And for some of us, maybe our parents tell us it's our fault that we feel that way. And then that leads to the frustration and the resentment and the rage that Joy felt, which is symbolized by the splintering of her consciousness through these multiverses. And it's in this moment when Joy and Evelyn are first jumping in the movie and we get to the scene with the rocks. They're in a universe 
where they aren't in human bodies anymore. They're not some version of Evelyn or some version of Joy. They're two rocks sitting on a cliff overlooking a canyon or a ravine. And there's silence, stillness, peace. And the only quote-unquote talking is through captions. And the captions are differentiated by different colors so we know who is talking. And this is a universe where the conditions weren't right for life, but Joy and Evelyn still exist. They might not be in human form, but they still exist. And they're still together. And there's no distractions. There's no thankless job you have to work at for like 8, 10, 12 hours a day, right? There's no laundromat. There's no IRS lady yelling at you, telling you you didn't deduct your expenses right or that you can't claim your karaoke machine as a business expense. There's no one judging you. There's no cell phones. There's no noise. No noise. It's just the two of them sitting there on that cliff in stillness, overlooking a ravine with mountains in the distance. And through the captions, Evelyn says to Joy, it's nice. And Joy's caption says, yeah, you can just sit here and everything feels really far away. And they can just be present with each other. You know, they can't speak per se, they have no mouths, but somehow there's a transference of consciousness to one another so that they can communicate. I don't even think we can call it telepathy because they have no brains in that universe, right? They're rocks. So it's a transference of consciousness. And Evelyn says, Joy, I'm sorry about ruining everything. And Joy responds, Shh. You don't have to worry about that here. Just be a rock. Oh my gosh, I cried. I had to pause the movie because I was crying so hard. I mean, I'm crying right now just telling you about it. And the first reason why I was crying was because Evelyn said she was sorry. Evelyn told Joy she was sorry. And I kept thinking how things could have been different. If my mom had said sorry to me, my mom definitely was not the type of person to say she was sorry. But I understand why she didn't or why she couldn't. Now, I'm not saying that every Asian mother owes their daughter an apology. I'm not saying that. So I don't want anyone to misinterpret that. But what I am saying is that there are a lot of young Asian American Pacific Islander women who are in pain. There are a lot of young Asian American Pacific Islander women who feel as though they don't have anyone to talk to. There are a lot of Asian American Pacific Islander women who feel like they don't have a safe space. And there are a lot of young Asian American Pacific Islander women who feel like they can't talk to their mothers. And that causes them deep and profound pain. And even though it wasn't spoken in that moment in the movie, just the words... Joy, I'm sorry about ruining everything. And Joy saying, shh, you don't have to worry about that here. Just be a rock. That scene went a long way to depicting what a lot of Asian American Pacific Islander women are dealing with. And it opened up a space to give us an opportunity to talk about it.
What was really amazing to me about what's being written about the movie, I even followed a Reddit thread where young people, at least I'm going to assume they were young. I mean, I think anybody on Reddit must be younger than me. I was following this Reddit thread where they were talking about how they were sitting in the movie theater bawling, just crying their eyes out because this movie spoke to them on such a deep level that they could feel the emotions in their bones. And the fact that they were all talking about it on this Reddit thread, to me, that's amazing and beautiful because this movie, even in all its absurdity and wackiness, in its complexity and multiverseness and just everything, it opened this space where people can share. Where people can share and say, I can finally talk about this. And in talking about it, I can finally heal. And this healing has the power to help us break the cycle of intergenerational trauma. And for that, I will be so grateful to this movie. Because I don't know if I would be talking about this right now either if I hadn't finally seen the movie. It allowed me to give myself permission to speak about this. About 10 years ago, I had an evolent moment with my daughters. When I heard my mom coming out of my mouth and them saying they hated me, words that I had once said to my mom when I was a teenager, when I could step outside of myself and witness that happening, I knew that I was continuing this cycle of pain passed down from mother to daughter in our family for generations. For who knows how long. And I told them that I was sorry. I told my daughters that I wanted to break the cycle. And I have had to work really hard to earn their trust again. To earn their love. But I want my daughters to feel as though I do love them unconditionally because I do. And here, within the space of this podcast, I share that with all of you listening. For any ways that I have contributed to perpetuating a cycle of intergenerational trauma to my own daughters, I say to them, I'm sorry and I love you. I want us to break the cycle. The other scene in the movie that made me cry was the everything bagel. And it seems as though there are some people who are avoiding this topic, which contradicts what I just said about how this movie has opened up space for conversation. Maybe it's because some people are uncomfortable talking about suicide or suicidal ideation. I mean, the Daniels duo, the creators and directors of the movie, publicly stated the following in a tweet on the release date of the movie. So I'm going to quote, Writing everything everywhere all at once was a foolish prayer to a cold, indifferent universe. It was a dream about reconciling all of the contradictions, making sense of the largest questions, and imbuing meaning onto the dumbest, most profane parts of humanity. We wanted to stretch ourselves in every direction to bridge the generational gap that often crumbles into generational trauma. It was an attempt to create the narrative equivalent of the theory of everything, a big data approach to myth-making a post-genre deconstruction of traditional narrative, a maximalist manifesto for surviving in the noise of modern life, and holy shit, these two clowns named Daniel were not up for the challenge. 
But even with this statement where they say that they attempted to create a quote-unquote maximalist manifesto for surviving the noise of modern life, the Daniels duo also admit they were quote, not up for the challenge. Maybe this is the reason why I read in another article that they're reluctant to answer questions about if the everything bagel represented Tobu Topaki or Joy's, the Alpha Joy's, desire to commit suicide. That her depression, her emotional struggles, and everything else she was coping with, that she was tired by it all, that she was so exhausted by it. I mean, that's what she says towards the end of the movie. She's so exhausted by it all. And she doesn't want to hurt anymore. She just wants it to end. So the nihilism that Joy exhibits is not so much about destroying the world and all the multiverses. It's really about this internalized self-hatred of not feeling loved. Maybe on some level of feeling as though she's not even worthy of being loved. I mean, she pushes people away. At least the Jobu Tupaki version of Joy does, right? She pushes everyone away. Because she's afraid of letting anybody get close to her because she's afraid of getting hurt. And she thought she had found the Evelyn. She thought she found the version of her mother who would understand because she herself was not quote-unquote good at anything. You know, Evelyn in the movie, she she was a fuck-up. She was a failure. That's why she was told that she was the Evelyn, right? And it was this Evelyn who... Jobu Tupaki or Joy thought could be a rock with her and look over that cliff that she had finally found the Evelyn who could say she was sorry, who could say that she loved her, who could say that she accepted her, that she was enough, that she was everything as she was. She didn't have to be anyone else but who she truly, authentically was. And when Evelyn didn't seem as though she was willing to jump into the everything bagel with Joy at the end of the movie, then Joy felt rejected and let down again. And she was ready to go into the everything bagel by herself. And all those scenes and all those other universes where Joy says, just let me go. And Evelyn says, okay. I mean, to me, it's just so clear that, that she wanted to end it, that this was suicidal ideation. And she rolls off of the cliff. I think that's where I lost it again, crying. They go back to the scene with the rocks and she just rolls off the cliff. And the Evelyn rock is there by herself. But then Evelyn goes after her. She pulls her back from the bagel. The Evelyn rock rolls down the cliff after the Joy rock. She's trying to be that force of love that tethers Joy back to her as her mother. Back to home, back to family, back to life. Back to life. And even though it's not explicit in the movie, it's critical to recognize how important it was that this opened up a space for us to talk about suicide and suicidal ideation among, in particular, Asian American Pacific Islander women. Even though the directors, the Daniels duo, declined to comment on the portrayal of depression and suicidal thinking for a Mashable article written by Rebecca Ruiz, a senior feature writer who covers mental health, science, parenting, and politics. This article was published on March 13, 2023 on Mashable's website, and it's titled, Everything Everywhere All at Once Has the Best Take on Mental Health You Never Expected. 
And in this article, that's what the writer talks about. The writer talks about, the writer Rebecca Ruiz talks about how it seems clear that that's what the everything bagel symbolized. It symbolized suicidal ideation. And I wish the Daniels duo would talk about it because to me, this is extremely important. But even if they don't, I'm going to talk about it anyway because it's there and other and I'm not the only person who's who saw it so again I'm grateful that the movie opens up a space for us to be able to talk honestly about this crisis within our community I wanted to share these articles and statistics about suicide rates among young Asian American Pacific Islander women in the Mashable article I cited earlier Ruiz interviews Larissa Karin a 22 year old Filipina American who goes to San Francisco State University and who admits to having experienced depression and suicidal thoughts and whose mother is an immigrant from the Philippines. Ruiz quoted Larissa as saying, quote, I sat in awe as I watched everything everywhere all at once, which I did more than once. She also said that she saw striking glimpses of her own life and struggles in the film. In fact, there were almost too many moments like that to count. In Joy and Evelyn's strained relationship, Larissa recognized her own longing to connect with her mother in ways made difficult by the constraints of language, culture, and generational differences. In the article, Larissa says, It was very healing to visualize that scene in my life because it depicts suicide, it depicts nihilism, but it also depicts connection and wanting connection. And as a student at San Francisco State University, Larissa is writing her senior thesis about suicide prevention among Filipino-American youth in the wake of the pandemic. And having this space to talk about suicide and suicidal ideation among Asian-American women is so extremely important. And this movie has been a kind of finally moment for us to be able to do so. Another article I wanted to share is written by Amelia Nora Oshiro, who is a PhD candidate in public health, social, and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University. And the article is titled, Asian American Young Adults Are the Only Racial Group with Suicide as Their Leading Cause of Death, So Why Is No One Talking About This? And the article was published on April 23rd, 2021 on a website called The Conversation. I'm going to have Myung, anything that I cite in today's podcast episode, I'm going to have Myung put the links to on our podcast page. So here are some passages from that article. So I'm quoting, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. When broken down by race, suicide is the first leading cause of death among Asian American young adults aged 15 to 24. This is true of no other racial group in this age range in America. Despite this disparity, very little attention is paid by society and by gatekeeping institutions like academia and private and public funding agencies as to what causes suicidal behavior among racial minorities like Asian Americans. There is not enough research on how to prevent suicide among Asian Americans in particular. What makes this research more challenging to do is that Asian Americans are also the least likely racial group to seek and utilize mental health services. Like I said, I'll have Myung put a link to this and to anything else I'm citing, um, and she'll put it on the podcast page. There's also information that I want to share from the NAPOF website, and NAPOF is the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. 
they have a webpage on their website titled Mental Health Among AAPI Women. And they cite 2017-2018 uh, data from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Offices of Minority Health. And some of this is going to repeat what I just read, but then there's going to be additional information. So the first point on that page on the NAPOF website, one, suicide was a leading cause of death for Asian Americans ages 15 to 24. Two, Asian American girls in grades 9 through 12 were 20% more likely to attempt suicide compared to their non-Hispanic white peers. Three, only 43.9% of Asian American adults who experienced major depressive episodes received treatment compared to 68.5% of white adults. And then on the Newport Institute's website, there's a webpage titled the facts about Asian American mental health and suicide rates, and I want to read the first two paragraphs. New research reveals that the youth mental health crisis is taking a heavy toll on the Asian American community. Statistics from the CDC show that suicide is the first leading cause of death for Asian American young adults, accounting for one-third of the deaths among Asian Americans aged 20 to 24. This is the only racial group within this age demographic for whom this is true. Over the past year, the stressors on Asian American young adults have multiplied. Not only are they affected by the pandemic's impact on employment, education, and well-being, they also have been subjected to the emotional burden of increased discrimination and racially motivated attacks. A report by the Center for Study of Hate and Extremism found that violent assaults and verbal harassment directed toward Asian Americans increased by 150% in 2020, while overall hate crime dropped. Again, I'll have Myung put links to all these websites on the podcast page. Even though these statistics are recent, it's important to understand that the suicide crisis among young Asian American Pacific Islanders has existed for a long time. And everything, everywhere, all at once, courageously puts it in front for all to see as the everything bagel that has the power to annihilate us and can only be stopped through unconditional love. For anyone listening who may be feeling alone or depressed or may be having suicidal ideations, please, I ask you to find support from somewhere. You are beautiful and you are valued and you mean so much. You are a light shining in this world. Please don't let anyone dim your light. Please reach out to someone who loves you unconditionally. Please, please try to find someone you trust who can help you. Connect with a person or people or groups who speak to your heart who nourishes your spirit. If you feel as though you don't have that kind of support among people in your life, then I want to share information about different support services that are available. If you live in the Philadelphia area, Mango Tree Counseling and Consulting is an Asian American mental health provider based in Philly. They provide counseling services to AAPI people who live in Pennsylvania, but they're not licensed to do so outside of the state. But they do have a YouTube channel, so you can watch some of their mental health video seminars. Their website is mangotreecc.com. So all one word, mangotreecc.com. And on YouTube, you can search for Mango Tree Counseling and Consulting. If you live outside of Pennsylvania, there's also the Asian Mental Health Collective, which tries to help AAPI people find therapists and other mental health support. For other ways to find an API mental health provider, I will share the link to an article published by the Huffington Post written by Brittany Wong titled, How to Find a Therapist Who Focuses on Asian American Mental Health. 
To anyone listening who may be thinking about suicide, again, I ask you to please, please talk to someone. You can reach the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline through a phone call, text, or chat by dialing 988. When people call, text, or chat 988, they will be connected to trained counselors that are part of the existing Lifeline network. These trained counselors will listen to people who contact the Lifeline understand how their problems are affecting them, provide support, and connect them to resources if necessary. The previous Lifeline phone number, which is 1-800-273-8255, will always remain available to people in emotional distress or suicidal crisis. Another support service for people considering suicide is the Crisis Text Line. The Crisis Text Line is a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention. The organization's services are available 24 hours a day every day throughout the United States, Canada, UK, and Ireland. You can text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to Crisis Text Line at 741-741. You can also contact the National Alliance on Mental Illness Helpline or NAMI, N-A-M-I, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. The National Alliance on Mental Illness helpline can be reached Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Call 1-800-950-6264 or text HELPLINE, H-E-L-P-L-I-N-E, to 62640 or email them at helpline at nami.org. Members of the LGBTQ plus community can contact The Trevor Project, a nonprofit organization with a 24-7 helpline where people can talk to trained counselors who understand the challenges LGBTQ young people face. The counselors will listen without judgment and all of your conversations are confidential and you can share as much or as little as you like. Call the Trevor Project helpline at 866-488-7386 or you can text the word START, S-T-A-R-T, to 678-678. The last support service I'm going to share is the Trans Lifeline. The Trans Lifeline is a trans-led organization that connects trans people to the community to support and other resources they need to survive and thrive. You can call the Trans Lifeline at 877-565-8860. I'll have Myung put links to all of these resources on the podcast page. As I bring this podcast episode to a close, I'd like to share a poem. I hope that's okay. It's titled, Hello World, and it's a poem that I share for anyone who's feeling lost. It's a poem that I wrote because I myself was feeling lost, and it's a poem that I hope will remind people of how beautiful they are, that life is a process of self-discovery, and that where you are, you are always home. Where you yourself are, you are always home. One last thing I'd like to say about everything, everywhere, all at once, you know, I saw myself in both Evelyn and Joy. Throughout my life, as I said, I have been lost, and I'm still trying to find my way. But in the process, 
I hope that I can be a rock for myself and for my daughters. I hope you can find the rocks in your life and be a rock for your loved ones too. Hello world, you know who I am, I'm just an angry Asian girl whose soul is on the mend, calling out to you with no intent to offend, but can't help asking, a foe or a friend, hoping in the process, never to be lost again, as I descend into the depths to embrace the fight, ascend through space to be bathed in moonlight, I know all's right when I can finally say this is the first day of my life, and I feel so at home in this moment, so I closely hold it till it pulls me into focus, then I fold it into my spirit to forever be near it. Hear it again when life's at its worst and it hurts and I wonder what the trouble's really worth. I'll just listen to the earth and ponder this verse. Know my self-worth is a never-ending search for a discovery of the deepest parts of me. Then maybe I'll catch your hand trying to hit your ride as I drive on by to leave their lives behind. Yelling all the time, you must have thought I was blind, but nice try to heist a nice life. Christ, why would we be enticed by your hollow white lies when we can fly right on by? right on by and we're on our way through the world again sending out this message about where we've been we're on our way home certain now we'll never be lost again never be lost again never be lost again thank you very much for listening to that poem I was just thinking that since this episode will come out around Mother's Day, I would like to share a second poem about my mom. As I stated earlier in the podcast, my mom was a deeply traumatized person. I suspect that my grandmother was also deeply traumatized, and perhaps her mother before her, and so I believe there has been this painful legacy of intergenerational trauma passed along my maternal ancestral line. But even though my relationship with my mom could be difficult and contentious at times, I loved my mom with all my heart. I still love my mom with all my heart. And this past March 8th marked five years since my mom's passing. This Mother's Day will be our fifth Mother's Day without her. And so I share this poem about my mom, a poem about acknowledgement, empathy, healing, and love, and pass it on to any of you listening who may need to hear it for healing in your own lives. And I send it out into the universe for my mom, who was among the ancestors, and to all of my maternal ancestors beyond time. Happy Mother's Day from me to you with love. This poem is titled, Mother Words. This day I knew. Everything she did was a fight, and she loved me, though I believed she didn't. It is not her fault. My story is much shorter, and I am not fluent in her language of loving, though I grasp at what I can from her stories. A story such as that of a hanbok, fitting like a tragic skin and sewn with money in the seams by a pair of floating hands which pushed her onto a long, dusty road to Seoul. The money meant to buy shoes instead spent on rice candy as day after day her bare feet swept the train platform in solitary dances before clapping strangers. She, lost in sweet girlhood dreams of finally finding some place to call home, a place filled with smiles to see her. 
or a story such as that of a hungry stream rushing by like a lunging tiger, she in its midst, stranded and abandoned on rocks by the daughter of her stepfather's first wife, her own mother too busy as second wife, desperately trying to bear her new husband a son, to notice the tears of her lost girl. Or a story such as that of her as a tearful, newly discarded child, just sold by her own mother and left with strangers, chasing the dust of a wooden cart, fingers reaching to grab its splintered edges as her older brother screamed at her and smacked her hands away, each smack punctuating each of her heartbroken cries directed to her mother sitting still and silent next to him. Omani! 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 It's no wonder, then, that she could not imagine herself being called mother the word taking on the semblance of a curse. And she does not include such confessions in her stories to me, stories often told after I myself have tried unsuccessfully to call upon her, my mother. But all she has to give are these stories. And I have often responded by saying, these are not my stories. I have my own dreams and cannot be bothered to think of hers. And what right do I have to speak of such things anyway? to retell her stories. But what if the real question is, without her stories, how do I know what is true? How do I know who I am? How do I know who I should be? I struggle with the answers, but this is what I now understand. I do not properly say the word mother. And I did not know what a dream such a word is until I heard it spoken to me for the first time by my own daughters. The dream of hearing the mother word said, not with pain, not with sorrow, not with anger, but instead a mother word whose very utterance is a redemption for acceptance, a prayer for understanding a resurrection of love. Thank you so very much again for listening. I'm grateful to you for spending this time with me and sharing space. I'm not really sure what the topic of the next episode of Mind Your Margins will be or when it'll post. I've been wanting to do an episode talking about celebrating ancestors and I also feel it's vitally important to do a follow-up episode about the fight for women's rights over our reproductive health. But anyway, I told Myung I would try my best to make these episodes more often, so I'll keep my hopes up that I can do so. Myung also wants me to try to send out posts on Twitter and Instagram, so maybe I'll work on that by the summer. If you'd like to contact Myung and me, you can reach out to us via email at mindyourmargins at gmail.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Myung and I also hope that you will like and follow us on these social media platforms as well as subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified when the new episode has posted. Until we share space again, please be mindful of yourselves and mindful of others. Take good care. I am boy, I'm
my space. The power in my face in this ancestral embrace that is skin tight, but my skin fits me just They're all there, my ancestral throne, for I am, we are lifetimes infinite, billion strong.